Good morning, everyone. This is uh, Mohammed Samid here with the American Thoracic Society Pulmonary Rehabilitation Assembly. And today I am delighted to introduce two uh, innovators in the field of rehabilitation. They are considered uh, pioneers in the field of tele-rehabilitation and extending it uh, worldwide. Uh, I have Dr. Mishi Gu. She's the director uh, of Brain Rehabilitation Program in Toronto Rehabilitation Institute. Uh, she has uh, completed her med school at Queen's University and did her residency training program in physical medicine and rehabilitation at University of Toronto. So welcome, Dr. Gu. Thank you. And we have Dr. Carl Chico. Uh, he is a man of many hats, a pioneer in the field of tele-rehabilitation. He finished his residency training in physical medicine and rehabilitation at Philippine General Hospital in 2016. Uh, he did a lot of research in aging through the NIH uh, and University of Philippines, Manila, and, and further did some uh, exchange programs in research scholarships in Italy and Poland that we are going to explore more with him today. He is currently doing a clinical fellowship in brain medicine and the University of Toronto. He is also uh, the leader uh, uh, and was the chair of uh, Tele-Rehabilitation Committee of Philippines Academy of Rehabilitation Medicine from 2020 to 2021. He is also part of the Tele-Rehabilitation Special Interest Group of the World Federation of Neural Rehabilitation. So welcome, Dr. Lee Chico. Hi, Mohammed. Thank you for the kind introduction and for having us in this podcast. All right, so we are gonna jump straight into it. Uh, both of you, if you can share with us uh, a little bit about your early career, what motivated uh, you in these paths and what was the role of your mentors into in moving you in this direction? So, um, you know, in 2020, I started serving as the medical director of the Brain Rehab Program at Toronto Rehabilitation Institute. And we're very lucky at Toronto Rehab in that we have the Kite Research Institute, which had a number of researchers, like, for example, Dr. Robin Green, that were very interested in the field of rehabilitation delivered through the tele-rehab platform. How I became um, you know, interested in this field was actually at the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, because um, with the lockdowns in um, Ontario, which is the province that Toronto is in at the time, we all of a sudden actually could not deliver outpatient rehab anymore. Um, that's in an in-person setting. Um, and in the meantime, you know, for patients with strokes and brain injury, they really have this like golden period about three to six months after the initial um, stroke or brain injury that we have to take advantage of. Otherwise, their neural recovery is not going to be as good. So we had to really rapidly pivot, basically completely in person, um, you know, outpatient rehab program to virtual in the span of about five weeks. Um, so but we were the, the first like kind of, you know, hustle to make that huge shift um, in, uh, uh, in our province. And after we did that and we started telling people about it, people were very interested in how we made that change because they also wanted to do the same thing for their patients and for their program. So that was how we actually ended up developing the Toronto Rehab Tele-Rehab Toolkit, which is a toolkit that's like very kind of, um, you know, meant for frontline um, clinicians and healthcare managers and healthcare leaders to rapidly shift and implement tele-rehab um, in their programs. 
And I was very, very lucky to have great mentors. I'll only highlight one of them due to time limitations. So Dr. Mark Bailey, who is the physiatrist in chief at Toronto Rehab, and he was the one who introduced me to the field of rehab, um, delivers through tele-rehab platforms, and uh, also has been really, really instrumental in terms of supporting my work. Well, that, that's fantastic to hear that how uh, one event um, like COVID really steered you in that direction and you were able to find mentors that, uh, that drove you uh, further development in your career. Uh, I think we'll come back to the toolkit. Uh, Dr. Leo Chico, uh, do you wanna uh, tell us a little bit about your early education? Because I know you have a very interesting background and uh, what prompted you to move into uh, tele-rehabilitation and what role did your mentors play into sort of helping you develop this career? Okay, uh, thank you, Mohammed. Um, well, actually rehabilitation has always been close to my heart. Um, my pre-medical course was actually physiotherapy. And even during that time, I've always wanted to become a physiatrist. And so I went into med school and eventually went into residency training in PM&R. And as a resident, I think I was a second year resident during that time when I had my first publication and it was about tele-rehab. That was before the pandemic, uh, specifically in 2015, around that time. And a lot of people haven't heard about tele-rehab yet, uh, at least in the Philippines during that time. And eventually, this tele-rehab initiative that I had together with my uh, mentor, who was the chair of the Department of Rehab Medicine during that time, um, we were able to develop that tele-rehab initiative into a service program that was adopted by our institution. And soon enough, um, the, the, the College of Medicine actually saw the potential of tele-rehab or telemedicine in general. Eventually, they adopted it into a curriculum. Uh, so the medical students who were rotating in the department um, had an experience of tele-rehab, how to like provide tele-rehab service to a remote partner community. And so during that time, it was about the time towards my graduation, uh, I was sent by the university to Europe, specifically Italy and Poland, to further my knowledge and skills in terms of geron technology. It's uh, the technologies used for older adults. So in Europe, I worked with experts in the field of computer science on research like uh, developing technologies. And among these technologies was tele-rehab. And so that actually even further increased my interest in tele-rehab. And uh, I was able to work on different projects, both local, locally and internationally, in order to uh, first improve the awareness of people, of uh, our stakeholders regarding tele-rehabilitation and eventually uh, collaborate with experts in IT and also in engineering to develop some applications, for example, mobile applications or other technologies, mostly low cost and locally available uh, that can be used for our indigent patients in the Philippines. Um, in terms of mentors, well, 
being a teacher before entering fellowship, I really recognize the role of my mentors in shaping the person I am now. Well, in every stage of my um, formative years, I was always blessed to have a mentor. For, for instance, in medical school, I, it was our dean himself who was my mentor. He taught me a lot about research writing and statistics. Um, he is uh, Dr. Domantai. And then during my residency training, as mentioned, it was the chair of the department, Dr. Mohika, who was my mentor in tele-rehab. And he believed a lot in my potential. And uh, he was actually the one who inspired me into going into like further studies, like this one, the Brain Medicine Fellowship. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, actually, Dr. Meichi Guo is among my staff in brain medicine. And uh, brain medicine is actually a relatively new interdisciplinary program that is run primarily by a neurologist, cognitive neurologist, and a psychiatrist. And uh, they are experts in the management of neuropsychiatric and neurodegenerative disorders. This program is actually unique because they accept trainees from different specialties uh, that deal with the brain, uh, like neurology, psychiatry, neurosurgery, physiatry, and even geriatric medicine. And through this program, we are able to acquire transdisciplinary competencies to approach patients with complex brain disorders or those with disturbances in affect behavior and cognition. So we we also do a lot of virtual care in our clinic. So with my background in tele, I'm able to practice my my skills in virtual assessment and management. That's that's very exciting, and it's yes. it's so uh, interesting to see different backgrounds coming together. Uh, and we're going to move on to uh, the next question was uh, that would be focusing on technologies. Now, we have mentioned the uh, the University of Toronto Toolkit, but and Dr. Leo Chico, you mentioned uh, something about information technology side of things, the apps or the applications. Can both of you shed light on the technologies either at the end of the patient or at the end of the physician uh, that make tele-rehabilitation possible. And uh, may I extend the question if that can be extended beyond the brain, like uh, mm-hmm. fo- focus being on pulmonary rehabilitation, are, are there tools today that if someone wants to build a tele-rehabilitation program, can, can it be done in that area? Yeah, definitely. Uh, well, before we go into the technologies, uh, used in tele-rehabilitation in either site, in either the patient's or the healthcare provider's site, and going further into, te- into telepulmo rehabilitation, probably we need to define what tele-rehab is just to like, uh, like have a baseline information or common understanding of what tele-rehab is. So by the term itself, tele, uh, it means at a distance, right? So there is some form of transmission occurring over a distance. And in telemedicine, in general, there is this form of communication regarding any health-related information, either between a patient and a provider, so that's the direct doctor-to-patient format or direct-to-home care, or it can also happen between clinicians or among clinicians, such as the doctor-to-doctor format, such as when a remote-based physician, for instance, seeks an opinion from another 
specialist or from another physician regarding a complicated case. So in that second setup, the patient may be with the referring physician, either in person or virtually. And uh, when we talk about tele-rehab specifically, it's delivering rehabilitation via any of these setups or formats. And in terms of aims, I think tele-rehab aims are manifold. And I would like to group them into three aims. So the first aim is to provide service. And that's what we all do, right? Uh, service to patients, their caregivers, families, and also to referring physicians. In the Philippines, for instance, uh, we, we get a lot of referrals from the primary care physicians, or as we call them, municipal health officers who are based in remote communities. And they see patients with stroke or SCI or pulmonary conditions such as tuberculosis or POTS disease who may be referred to rehab, who may already have developed complications and therefore they're in need of rehabilitation consults and therapeutic services that like a primary caregiver, a primary care physician might not be able to uh, confidently provide. And then, so aside from service, we have the purpose of training or education and we provide training to residents, fellows, and education to allied health professionals, or as I've mentioned a while ago, even to our medical students rotating in rehab. So we're able to give them a glimpse of how telemedicine is like. And last aim of tele-rehab is research. And this is in line with what Dr. Meiji and her team at Toronto Rehab is doing. So they're researching on various applications of tele-rehab technologies. Uh, and there are a lot of areas that have yet to be studied on since tele-rehab is relatively new. So we have to develop and eva evaluate technologies for virtual assessment, delivering therapeutic interventions over a distance, and remote monitoring. So these are the areas that we can look into and the, the, the technologies will actually depend on what purpose we have for doing tele-rehab. And when we talk about tele-rehab, we can also define it based on three procedures or models of service delivery. We can provide tele-rehab for teleconsultation, that's one, for telemonitoring or teleassessment, and for teletherapy. So when we do teleconsult, that's what doctors or th and therapists do. They get to know the patient, they evaluate the patient, and they use these information, these baseline information, for determining need for investigations, for prescribing medications, for prescribing exercise programs, and other rehab-related recommendations. And then second, for telemonitoring, the next model of service delivery, we can monitor the doctor or the therapist can longitudinally monitor how patients are doing over a distance. And you have technologies also for this, such as the sensors, the wearables that we can give to pulmonary to patients with pulmonary conditions or to cardiac conditions to, to detect their cardiovascular response to physical activity or medications. And the last one is teletherapy. We administer physiotherapy interventions, occupational therapy interventions, pulmonary rehab interventions over a distance by primarily facilitating or 
performing demo return demos or counseling or providing simple instructions to patients um, who may be accompanied in person by their caregiver or any reliable adult. And this is also called telecoaching. So knowing the definition, the aims, and the procedures involved in telerehab, it's easier now to determine what technologies may be applicable because uh, basically it's common sense as long as we know the aims and the procedures needed for that particular uh, patient. So the choice of format, whether doctor to doctor or doctor to patient, and the specific technology will depend on the aim of the tele-rehab, whether it's for service, for training, for, for research, and the procedure sought, whether it's for uh, teleconsult and or telemonitoring and teletherapy. So basically, the technologies we can divide into two categories, the store and forward, which is asynchronous, and the interactive one, which is synchronous or the real-time. Mm-hmm. It can also happen that we have a combination of both for efficiency or sometimes when internet or technical glitches occur because you have to resort to other ways, right? You have to combine or you have to, for example, you start with the synchronous one and then you end up later with asynchronous if you have like internet problems. Uh, So for synchronous, of course, the ideal one is the video conferencing, Mm -hmm. Uh, but video phones also can apply and also smartphones. But for asynchronous ones, there's a component of time delay for various reasons, like uh, there's uh, unavailable internet during that time, or differences in time, or logistics, uh, or availability of the the caregiver who's uh, with the patient. So asynchronous format can come in the form of emails or like sending of a uh, patient health related information through whatever medium that's uh, available to the sender or to to, to the recipient. And then the standard is definitely the synchronous one, the live video conferencing for obvious reasons, such as it's more accurate in terms of patient evaluation and also for ensuring patient safety during teletherapy. uh, And ideally, this is done through privacy-compliant video platforms. However, in my experience coming from a resource-limited country, uh, this ideal live video conferencing is not always possible because of various reasons, uh, such as the costs of internet, the lack of technology access, or even know-how among indigent patients especially, or elderly individuals, lack of internet availability in rural areas as well. And in these cases, we have to resort to other forms of synchronous methods, like phone calls, which of course has limitations, Mm -hmm. uh, especially in terms of inability to perform a thorough and accurate evaluation. But that's reality. Uh, Some even cannot afford phone calls, but can only afford SMS or text messaging, or even engage in free social media platforms like Facebook, Viber, WhatsApp. And although these have limitations and even have data privacy risks, these are realities seen in resource-limited countries. And we have to provide some support to to our patients in need rather than not providing any help at all. So it's like a matter of trying to practice equity and inclusion. Yeah. 
And I think regarding the advanced technologies, Dr. Guo can uh, discuss some of these. Thank you. Thank you so much for that overview, um, uh, Dr. Leo Chico. Um, so there are additional technologies that augment the telerehab experience for patients and clinicians. And you know, this is a really, really exciting field. Um, and in countries um, where you know, we do have funding to explore these technologies, they really can uh, make the telerehab experience almost as if you know, the, the patient and the clinician are actually working in person. So first, there are robotics-assisted telerehabilitation, which either assist the patient or the clinician. I'll highlight two examples. Um, I am going to say that some of the technology I mentioned have been commercialized. I do not have any financial or personal relationship with any uh, you know, companies that are making these technologies that I, I, I mentioned, just as a full disclosure. Um, so one example I want to highlight in terms of, you know, assisting the clinician is the Temi robot, which was created at the University of Calgary in Canada. And it's this like cool little robot that actually allows a clinician in a different geographical site to have a physical presence where the patient is. So like the clinician can move the robot around and like literally follow the patient around the room as they're exercising. So, you know, that is definitely something that in pulmonary rehabilitation would be quite helpful. Then there are also robotic systems that actually deliver the treatment or assess the patient. Um, so an example of a system that delivers treatment is the Merlin, which was created by a Dutch research group, and one that assesses the patient's the tin arm, which is Canadian. So, you know, the robot is quote, doing the work um, as directed by the clinician, but then the clinician is available over a video-to-video telerehab platform to monitor the progress, tailor the treatment program that's being performed by the robot, and provide feedback to the patient. And uh, as uh, Dr. Leo Chico mentioned, you know, biomedical sensors and remote se monitoring systems also play a big role in telerehab. Oftentimes, these are linked to a patient's smartphone as a way to transport information to the clinicians. Um, for example, Dr. Roshan Fecker here at Toronto Rehab is developing a camera-based telerehab system that, you know, it's like a camera, you just mount it somewhere in the patient's room um, and analyzes the visual input from the camera as the patient is exercising um, to calculate body movement features like range of motion, for example. Um, and there are also sensors like the polar monitor that can transmit heart rate, blood pressure in real time to a clinician during a telerehab session. And I think things like that will be really important in pulmonary rehabilitation where I'm sure people are very interested in things like O2SAT. And then there are also home-based ECG monitors that can transmit data from a patient's home to uh, the clinicians um, you know, as they're exercising. Um, in addition for asynchronous telerehab, I want to mention social media platforms. So um, this is very commonly seen in cardiac rehab, but I think it's also very applicable to other areas, including pulmonary rehab. An example is the Epic Care Companion. So patients use that to message their therapists, and then therapists respond asynchronously. Um, they send exercise videos and cute little motivation um, no messages. And there are also social media platforms out there being developed where you can group patients together and, you know, create almost like a community for them where they, they feel like they got to compete with each other a little bit in their rehab journey. Thank you, Dr. Michi. Yeah, I think hearing from both of you, breaking it down into the simple basics of what tele-rehabilitation encompasses. And I can imagine in the post-pandemic uh, era where 
the pandemic sort of showed us the need to deliver some of our services, as Dr. Liochiko mentioned, by not allowing the patients to come to a healthcare facility. Can, can these be done at home? And I can imagine the boom in technology of video conferencing and video call sort of allowed for this idea to organically develop and can we provide services through these technologies? And then as Dr. Michi mentioned, uh, there are now synchronous robotics uh, sensors that can give you real-time data. And I can imagine that the accuracy of these asynchronous and asynchronous uh, modalities is enough to allow us to collect high quality data that can help us in research and, and feedback. Uh, I mean, for, for my recent experience in rehabilitation, I went through spine rehab. And um, I mean, I saw my provider once or twice in the office, but many a times he would send me a message and I would get you know videos in an app that can uh, coach me uh, if, I, if I'm missing something on some of my exercises. And then if I'm following the prompts correctly, it actually recorded how many times had I opened the app before the exercise, how many times I did it as prescribed, was it as prescribed, am I behind schedule? And the app would prompt me to do my exercise on a daily basis. So I can, I can imagine that we are actually a little far ahead in, in adopting those than one might think and these small modalities sort of appearing in our day-to-day uh, yeah, definitely, Mohammed. I agree with you that uh, there have been a lot of tele-rehab-related advancements since the pandemic, and uh, you've mentioned some of them. And uh, many people, actually, both healthcare providers and consumers, have become more aware now about the value of tele-rehab or telemedicine in general uh, because of the pandemic. People are now relatively more accepting and open-minded to change and innovations. As such, a tele-rehab provided greater access to more people. And this eliminates the barriers to accessing in-person rehab care, such as constraints brought about by, for instance, workforce shortage, the distance to the nearest uh, rehab center or gym. In, in our case, in the Philippines, we have complex topography being an archipelago. We have difficulties in transportation and logistics especially for some people who have disability and who may be unable to walk independently, for instance. Um, with the pandemic, uh, we are seeing more tele-rehab researches being done. Increasing evidence is available. And we also have provided more training or education-related uh, opportunities regarding telemedicine or tele-rehab, how to conduct it, such as webinars or even this podcast. And uh, actually, during the pandemic, I think we have had more funding opportunities, right, Dr. Guo, <laughs> that would like uh, advocate tele-rehab. I would agree. <laughs> yeah. And more policies in place as well. Uh, we see also uh, tele-rehab guidelines or protocols such as the one prepared by uh, Dr. Guo and her team to guide uh, healthcare workers or rehabilitation professionals and even patients in uh, their conduct of tele-rehab. And so generally, I think we are more prepared now compared to before the pandemic uh, in terms of engaging in telemedicine or tele-rehab. However, although there have been a lot of challenges that were addressed in the past three years since the pandemic began, there are still a lot more work 
that uh, have yet to be done. Uh, for instance, we published a study in the Frontiers in Neurology that summarized the challenges that hinder the success of tele-rehab, at least in our country. And we grouped the challenges in three categories. First, we have the human-related factors or challenges. Under human-related factors, we have the stakeholders being the healthcare workers or the patients who may still have enduring concerns or apprehensions about tele-rehab. Uh, in particular, physiatrists are concerned about the limitations in virtual exam. So we found this out actually firsthand from our physiatrists uh, nationally. We conducted a uh, national survey at the height of the pandemic, and we published that study in our purple journal, the PMNR, and we tabulated the various apprehensions of, of our physiatrists about tele-rehab. And the top one is that notion that you cannot do a thorough and accurate evaluation of patients through tele. Uh, so this implies that we need to conduct more studies to validate virtual examination techniques and also standardized tests conducted virtually by video or even by telephone. We need to come up with more protocols or probably algorithms to guide healthcare workers in increasing their confidence in their skills in conducting a concise yet accurate virtual exam. And another group of factors we looked into was organizational factors. So one, the first one is human factors. Now we're discussing organizational factors. And under this, a huge issue is uh, the lack of clarifications in the interim telemedicine or telerehab policies we put out there uh, when the pandemic began. So as our experiences increase, we need to exchange best practices. We need to update our like interim policies and uh, probably address the, the issues that the healthcare, healthcare, healthcare providers still have, like liabilities. What are the liabilities of the doctors and therapists? What are the standards of care uh, expected of a quality and equitable tele-rehab service? Do we have an appropriate use criteria to uh, like streamline or to prioritize the patients who need it most and who would benefit from a tele-rehab service uh, compared to an in-person service? And what are the rights and limitations to what are the limitations to those rights of the patients? What are the responsibilities of patients and their families? So there are a lot of things we can discuss under organizational factors. And the last one is technical factors. So this is still a challenge, even in the post-pandemic world, uh, I can foresee. Uh, one is internet issues. That will remain a problem, especially in resource-limited countries. Access to, to technology. I actually envy countries uh, like Canada with very advanced tele-rehab devices or equipment and uh, how I wish uh, we had that in the Philippines. And uh, another issue is the access to encrypted telemedicine softwares or applications. I've mentioned some of them a while ago. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, those non-encrypted ones, Facebook, that, that's 
being used in the Philippines, unfortunately, because uh, yeah, we don't have like access to encrypted and purchased telemedicine softwares that indigent patients can can access. So yeah, unfortunately, we don't have those. But those encrypted ones will protect data privacy. Yeah, and I think that further extends our discussion into uh, the privacy concerns. Uh, I know that you know around the world, healthcare data is treated differently, and I can imagine uh, having the laws in place like we have here in North America, especially in the United States and Canada. Uh, similarly, in France and Germany, there, there, there laws protecting uh, healthcare data and privacy, and maybe. Those laws uh, need to be there first for the, uh, you know, mm-hmm. motivation to build encrypted apps. That's sort of my experience exactly. uh, in, in in resource limited countries. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think you highlighted a really good point and challenges because now we have this whole new modality that we are going to provide service and teaching, and 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 there has to be a certain standard that I, I know you you mentioned some of the guidelines that are coming out. Uh, addressing those, but I think the more we adopt it, the more this becomes uh, a reality to the world that this is not deliverable service and, and, and an education tool. I think those concerns regarding guidelines and standards and liabilities can be addressed as we go on. Uh, speaking of moving forward, I want you both to answer uh, the this one. Uh, we saw a once in a century pandemic and that disease had uh, for the survivors, implications on their lung health. Uh, they had neurocognitive problems, and, and that became a social media term of the post-COVID-19 syndrome. And there is now more and more data coming out that traditional rehabilitation programs uh, help the neurocognitive recovery, helps them uh, definitely get pulmonary function back. Um, do you think can tele rehabilitation allow for us an opportunity to uh, provide this uh, rehabilitation program at home? Uh, Can it have a wider reach, especially in country uh, like North America, where, uh, you know, uh, we have the modalities to provide tele-rehabilitation, but as you mentioned, the human challenges of the patients, uh, maybe not accepting that. So can we come to a point that this can be reimbursed uh, from, uh, and I know there are differences between Canada and, and, and the United States on how uh, reimbursement works for tele-rehabilitation and are the guidelines addressing these challenges in terms of it, it has a wider reach, but you know, there are also a re- reimbursement component uh, when it comes to tele-rehabilitation. Uh, thanks. So, I mean, I think when we talk about post-COVID-19 syndrome, there are different components to this syndrome. I mean, there's definitely the respiratory, uh, respiratory aspects of it where people complain long-standing dyspnea. And I think that might be probably what this particular audience is interested in. But post-COVID-19 syndrome is also wider than that. You know, there's also cognitive and fatigue and other symptoms that these type of patients who are experiencing post-COVID-19 syndrome complain of. And definitely people are making use of tele-rehab to um, help with uh, this type of patients. For example, like there is the Terraco um, uh, randomized control trial done by a group at Sutra University in China, where they looked at, um, you know, a tele-rehab program delivered via smartphone and then remote monitoring with heart rate telemetry. And here at Toronto Rehab, we have a post-COVID-19 rehab program that is run virtually. 
And uh, our program focuses on like, you know, the um, kind of like breathing and other physical, but also the cognitive uh, aspects of post-19, uh, post-COVID-19 syndrome as well. In the second part of the question you posed was around reimbursement. Um, as you mentioned, Canada and the US have very different healthcare systems. I'll talk about the Canadian healthcare system and then I'll talk briefly about the American healthcare system. So Canadian healthcare, as most people know, is mostly publicly funded, and this includes hospital-based outpatient therapy for serious conditions like, you know, um, stroke, brain injury, you know, COVID-19, if actually required hospitalization, etc. Um, tele-rehab is already accepted, I would say, as a modality of care delivery across Canada, um, although in terms of um, uh, it being offered, it's still mostly the academic rehab centers that offer tele-rehab. The publicly um, funded rehab hospitals are in Canada generally given global funding for a budgetary year rather than funded per patient procedure like it is in the United States. So it doesn't actually matter to individual hospitals with their annual global funding, whether rehab is in person or through tele-rehab. And in the private Canadian system, our private insurance plans do reimburse tele-rehab. Um, as for the U.S., I admit to not being an expert because I am Canadian, but my understanding is the U.S. is also quite accepting of tele-rehab, and it is widely implemented. You know, I, I know that U.S. private insurance plans do fund tele-rehab, and that I also that Medicaid likewise currently reimburses uh, tele-rehab. That is excellent to, to know that not only you're an expert in tele-rehabilitation, you have a deep grip on how different medical systems work around North America. So I'm, I'm highly impressed here. Uh, and, and, and I think it makes sense that how these modalities of teleclinics and tele-rehabilitation can provide a wider reach. Uh, it, it, as, as Dr. Leo Chico also mentioned, that there, there are modality to provide services. It's nice to see that, you know, healthcare systems, although differently, addressing the need to, to reimbursing the service. Now I'm going to change the pace of our conversation, and uh, I am going to tap in Dr. Leo Chico's expertise on this one as well. Uh, you have worked in the Philippines. You have uh, helped develop a teaching program there to implement uh, tele-rehabilitation widely. Uh, and then also you have experience and you've mentioned some of those difficulties firsthand in providing tele-rehabilitation in, in, in the Philippines. Now, I, I can imagine technology issues you mentioned about the access to smart devices and internet, but there are certain regional issues that you know sometimes go un unnoticed. For example, I, I was reading that in most developing countries, the adaptability of smartphones is high, but yet their engagement in high-end apps being low because of, of language barrier. And uh, if you compare YouTube to TikTok, TikTok has wider adoption in, in non-English speaking countries because the interface is so similar. It doesn't ask you for, for making an account. You open the app and it's everything is there. So just walk us through uh, what were the challenges you face and what are a few things you would mention to someone who wishes to start a tele-rehabilitation, either a service providing end or an, a teaching end in, in a low middle income country, Dr. Leo Chico. Yeah, thank you, Mohammed. Actually, if you've heard of this, uh, the Philippines is uh, the social media capital of the world or was once called the social media capital of the world. Uh, because, uh, well, a lot of people in the Philippines, regardless of age, educational background, 
financial status have Facebook accounts or have like some uh, form of social media engagement. And even though we are the social media capital of the world, it's unfortunate that the, the, the internet skills or know-how or connection of people in the Philippines are not translated into health-related outcomes. Um, so I think this is a matter of proper education to the stakeholders and especially the drivers of healthcare, so specifically the physiatrists or the physicians in general who are providing rehabilitation services and also the therapists. Um, and we can't blame this current generation of uh, rehabilitation professionals for being unable to influence the patients and their families regarding the proper use of technology in terms of translating te technical knowledge and access to something that's clinically meaningful. Uh, because first of all, they were not trained in telemedicine. Before the pandemic, telemedicine was not included in the academic curricula, either in undergraduate or postgraduate levels. And many of the current generations of uh, healthcare providers have basically learned on their own in terms of uh, how to conduct telemedicine or tele-rehab. And eventually, uh, they, of course, turned to uh, online resources available, turned to whatever tele-rehab or telemedicine policies or guidelines there are. But I think these aren't enough. Um, we have to provide more educational and training opportunities for them. And uh, we were able to publish a study in the American Journal of PMNR, and we tabulated there like a short instructional design on how we can teach uh, those relatively new to Telerehab or who haven't heard of Telerehab before, who hadn't have, uh, who had not have any ex prior experience with telemedicine. Um, so that could be a useful resource. And uh, yeah, in terms of the impact of tele-rehab in our setting, I think it was mostly positive, uh, catalyzed by the pandemic. Um, but as mentioned, we, we still have a lot of barriers to the success or to the, like, uh, sustainability of tele-rehab efforts, and uh, we summarized them a while ago into human, organizational, and technical factors. And the advice that I can give to those who want to venture into tele-rehab, one is to first educate yourself through webinars or through podcasts like this or through reading literatures or through engaging in uh, telemedicine initiatives you know, so you can have first-hand experience and then try not to reinvent the wheel because that will save a lot of time. Uh, so you might want to seek uh, consultations with those who are relatively more experienced, uh, pattern after their protocols or algorithms and individualize it according to your own needs and resources in your local setting. And then collaborate. Collaborate with the different disciplines. You know, what's unique in rehab is we are uh, collaborative 
we just don't work with doctors, but we also work with therapists from different disciplines, the physios, the OTs, SLPs, psychologists, and even social workers and vocational counselors. And uh, of course, the physicians from other specialties as well, such as pulmonologists, neurologists. Um, So we have to be more open-minded and collaborative so we can all move forward and uh, all for the sake of the patient. That's really insightful, Dr. Leo Chico. Uh, and, and speaking on that, uh, I'm just going to tap Dr. Guo on uh, the other end of the spectrum. Uh, do you think we have uh, devices and modalities that are sensitive enough to perform high quality research on tele-rehab that goes beyond just uh, cross-sectional surveys? Can we in real time, either synchronous or asynchronous, get high quality cardiovascular data and you know pulmonary feedback uh, with with some of the smart bands and and what where where is the field going in that direction in, in terms of research? I would say there's definitely a lot of research into the assessment aspects of tele rehab. As you mentioned, you know there are actually biomedical sensors and remote monitoring systems that allow transmission of heart rate, respirate, O2 sat, um, things like that. I'm not aware of a virtual uh, pulmonary function test um, system yet, but it would not be surprising to me if somebody's actually developing that. Um, so that will certainly be able to get um, many of the um, parameters and data that people in pulmonary have be interested in. Um, and I, I apologize, but the first part of your question uh, was... The, the translation of uh, high quality data collection. Uh, I mean, you mentioned the sensors, but is it possible now to actually conduct outcome studies on tele-rehabilitation or, or compare before and after programs? Oh, yes, it, it is possible. Um, as I mentioned, you know, there are even robotic-assisted um, systems like the KinArm that allows you to like virtually assess a patient in terms of you know, joint position sense and other aspects um, of their motor recovery um, through tele-rehab. Um, so this field is moving really rapidly, and, and it's also very, very exciting to see where it's going to go next. I would say, though, that practically speaking, based on the you know, tele-rehab studies that I've seen recently, uh, oftentimes, even when therapy is delivered virtually, like through tele-rehab, um, the tendency in randomized control trials is still to do um, the final outcome um, in person. And I think that's because there are more validated um, measures um, for um, you know, in-person assessments than there are for um, uh, tele-rehab assessments. That's great. And now I'm going to move to uh, the topic that we touched upon before. And uh, you know, augmented reality, uh, it's been tapped on for a few years uh, as a consumer product can assist in, you know, mapping guidance and, you know, virtual reality is something we, we see it in forms of headsets right now. Um, most of the companies have one, but both of these technologies haven't picked up, at least in the consumer market. We don't see everyone wearing a headset and playing a video game or mo- watching movies on their own headsets. It's just really not uh, practical yet. But do you see that augmented or virtual reality can become a future modality 
deep fertility rehabilitation? Um, we want to just first talk about what is the difference because sometimes people are not too clear. So augmented reality are interactive experiences that combine the real world and computer-generated content. Uh, whereas virtual reality, they're more like computer-generated, really immersive environments that make the users actually feel like it is real. Um, in terms of augmented reality, I definitely see it becoming more widely used in the future as people get more comfortable with the idea of um, telerehabilitation. There's lots of research going on in this area, but like you said, you know, it hasn't been used all that much in true clinical practice. Um, for example, like, you know, there's the Ghostman, which was already developed in the early 20s. And it's so cool. Like when I first read about it, I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Because like right now, even when we do in-person rehab, one of the challenges is when we show a patient a skill, the patient and the therapist don't actually share their viewpoints. But with this ghostman thing, like the, the patient and therapist use a headset that allows the therapist to see what the patient sees and vice versa. So then the patient is actually able to shadow the therapist's movements in their shared viewpoints, right? And it's much easier for a patient to pick up a skill. Um, and then I think the ones that's more commonly um, getting implemented in clinical practice are motion capture video systems that take in patients' movements in therapy at home. And then, um, you know, they provide feedback in real time by analyzing visual signals and giving the patient feedback on accuracy of their exercises. Um, and then, uh, you know, it's, it's, um, it's definitely an interesting area for sure. And I'm, and I'm very hopeful that we're going to take more advantage of augmented reality in clinical practice for telerehab in the future. Uh, uh, Dr. Leo Chico, over to you. All right. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Guo. Um, Dr. Guo differentiated between AR or and VR, right? And uh, VR is, uh, I agree with Dr. Guo, it's actually able to provide patients with a multi-sensory experience uh, in a 3D virtual environment. So VR is immersive and interactive uh, through the use of computer-assisted technology. And I think so far, the most cutting-edge hardware uh, to facilitate VR is the head-mounted display, right? Mm -hmm. um, and Patients can control digital recreations of their physical bodies, uh, such as through avatars, to perform practice behaviors that we want to train our patients with uh, in terms of uh, engaging in their virtual environment. Um, and several studies uh, have demonstrated that VR and AR rehab programs may develop uh, physical outcomes, uh, even cognitive outcomes, and it's also been used in pulmonary rehab. Um, and I agree with Dr. Guo that we hope to see a lot of these technologies being used in clinical practice in the future. Uh, however, I think what's hindering us is the lack of robust research on this area. That's why probably the uptake is not that high. Uh, and the research uh, issue is probably brought about by the various methodologies that we see in the literature. So it's hard to summarize and come up with a like strong evidence because the populations, for instance, are heterogeneous. 
the interventions are heterogeneous. The treatment dosages vary. Uh, and so it's hard to come up with a single conclusion. And uh, also the different healthcare settings would have their own uh, technologies available to them. And uh, it's also a matter of culture as well and a matter of costs. Uh, we've mentioned a while ago about reimbursements. So it's uh, actually quite difficult to see these uh, realities in the future. But uh, hopefully with greater education on, on this area and more research on this area, more enthusiasm, and probably interdisciplinary collaborations, like researchers can work together. Researchers from Toronto, for instance, may work with uh, researchers from the Philippines, something like that. So, so we can exchange best practices and come to a middle ground that would be applicable to uh, like a, a greater population. Well, that was, that was excellently summarized. And uh, I, I didn't see a world where I would be talking to two world-leading experts on a video platform five years ago. And I, I certainly think we can, <laughs> five years from now, we can come back to this podcast. And uh, when we probably are looking at each other in a VR eyeglasses or something and we'll talk we'll, we'll have a laugh about it but i think technology is moving at a pace that you know we cannot even predict the future for ourselves exactly on that note thank you both of you it was a fun conversation and before uh, we part uh, the last question we like to ask is if you can uh, give a few words of advice for someone who is interested in the field and seeking mentorship uh, and if you want to, if you wish to share your, your future research focus and where things are going for, for either of you. So uh, that will be our last note before we part. I would say for somebody who's interested in this field, um, in terms of like if you're thinking of doing research, for example, in this area, my advice would be you should go find some frontline clinicians delivering tele-rehab and ask them what they need. Because, you know, there's all this really great research but there's a disconnect between what researchers are, work, are working on and what frontline clinicians actually say they need. Um, so I, I feel like that's the advice that I would give. And if they're interested in seeking mentorship in the field, they can feel free to contact me and I'll, I'll do my very best to link you up with someone in the field. Um, in terms of what we're working on um, right now in our kind of like little um, tele-rehab um, uh, working group at Toronto Rehab, uh, we just launched the uh, version 2.0 of the Toronto Rehab Tele-Rehab Toolkit. So we're working on spreading the news about that. And uh, we're also doing two research projects within the next six months or so. Um, one is just that we identify we have a lot of safety data on tele-rehab from research trials, but that's not actually the real world. So we're doing a little study to look at the safety of tele-rehab in a clinical setting where we're going to look at the prevalence of adverse events for tele-rehab visits, as well as the type, severity, and preventability. I think that's going to you know, really help to establish the safety profile of tele-rehab um, and by extension could make you know, funders and accreditors um, find tele-rehab more acceptable. And it will also help providers to determine ways in the future to mitigate, better mitigate the safety risk of tele-rehab. And another thing that we're going to be doing is just a qualitative study looking at the needs, challenges, and facilitators um, for Canadian providers of tele-rehab after the pandemic. Thank you, Dr. Guo. Um, I think Dr. Guo uh, raised an excellent point regarding um, addressing the disconnect 
between research and the, the the actual needs of the end users. So thank you, Dr. Go, for raising that. Um, in terms of uh, like seeking mentorship, probably I can refer you to the World Federation for Neuro Rehabilitation. Uh, we have a tele-rehab special interest group there. And uh, she's going to... Uh, actually, I'm currently the secretary of that of that tele rehab sig, and uh, Dr. Go has agreed to like be part of that, and we're excited about the future directions of that tele rehab sig. Uh, one of the agenda of that tele rehab special interest group is to come up with tele rehab guidelines, like a go to document that can uh, be useful for like different healthcare settings. And I would like to congratulate Dr. Guo and her team for coming up with this tele-rehab toolkit. And this toolkit actually, uh, I also shared this toolkit with my colleagues back home in the Philippines and they found it useful. Thank you. And uh, we need to gather the different guidelines from various healthcare settings so we can like so they so these can actually serve as our basis when we come up with our own cohesive interdisciplinary international guidelines on telerehab. And uh, yeah, so with the guidelines, we also would like to uh, advocate for further uh, educational opportunities on telerehab so that uh, the current and uh, future clinicians can uh, be more well-equipped in providing telemedicine or tele-rehab in the event that we will, again, need to uh, isolate ourselves like in disasters or hopefully not in, in the near future uh, because like certain crises will uh, really uh, call for the need to innovate and to... Uh, think of ways outside the box and hopefully we're more prepared for that well on that wonderful note thank you both of you it was a really beautiful conversation and i really couldn't even imagine how 60 minutes passed it was uh, lovely uh, thank you so much for making the time and uh, i hope that you know our listeners enjoy i will leave both of your uh, bio on on the page so that if someone needs to reach out to you they can for mentorship and advice uh, and uh, definitely check out the university of toronto telerehab toolkit uh, i think it has a lot of resources for anyone interested in telerehabilitation and uh, hopefully this podcast is an excellent way for uh, new research thoughts as well as where policy and future is going uh, Thank you so much for being part of our podcast. 